Today's topic is somewhat a departure from the norm for me. Uh, most people would not call me a political uh, preacher. Um, my conviction is that I want the gospel to be the dividing line in our church. Um, so my focus is biblical texts, gospel, not whether you're a Republican or Democrat. That's not the the, the parameter in our church. It's, it's the gospel, not whether you're American or not. Um, there are some issues as we preach the Bible that are inevitable in being called political. But the reason is that before it was ever political, it was theological. It was biblical. A stand that has become political, mainly because of a cultural disagreement with the biblical teaching that is theological. And so one way I'm looking at this is that I'm not doing a political sermon. I'm doing a biblical sermon. I'm doing a theological sermon. It just has major political implications because our society, by and large, does not like the message. Um, So with that being said, um, I want to talk a little bit about sanctity of human life, but especially the Christian's role in regards to abortion. Um, As I was thinking about this subject, this being the sanctity of of human life Sunday, being recognized in a lot of places, um, this Saturday would be uh, the 38th anniversary of the Roe v. Wade decision uh, in 1973, uh, which legalized abortion. Uh, and so often it's the third Sunday of January, the Sunday that may be closest to that, that date. So in this case, that would be this Saturday. Um, where we are today with that issue is there are about 3,000 abortions a day in the United States. 3,000 abortions a day. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm of that generation that was born after that decision. I've never known anything but legalized abortion. Um, it's normal for me. I didn't say it was right. It's normal for me and my generation, all those who are young, younger than me. Those of you who are older could remember when that was a major change in our country. And the fact simply is that when a society, and not just a society, an individual, unless there is forces acted in that life, will tend to go toward ungodliness. How do you go further away from God's standard? Just do nothing. You'll do it. You, as a person, will walk away from God if you don't have concerted efforts in your life to bring you to godliness. As a church, that's true. As a country, as a society. And so what I'm saying to you is that as this society is going on, it is a further walk away from God, especially in regards to an issue of human life and the dignity, the value, the sanctity of it. So there are about... According to that number, uh, when you look at this worldwide, there's 130,000 abortions worldwide. So if you just look in the United States figures of that 3,000 abortions a day, and you compare it to 9-11, you got somewhere around 2,500 
deaths, uh, the Pearl Harbor, even last year's Haiti uh, event, uh, earthquake, around 3,000. You've got that type of large-scale death occurring daily in abortion clinics. Uh, that's, that's society as we know it. So who has these abortions? Well, based on the current abortion rates, one in three women will have an abortion by age 45. One in three. And you think, well, that's probably not true of this group. We are people who follow the Lord. We bear the name Christian. Um, Well, according to some statistics for the Center for Disease Control and the Guttmacher Institute, nearly two-thirds of women having abortions say they are Christians. They bear that, that label. So, when I hear that statistic and I look at this group, I know that there are folks here that are dealing with it and have dealt with the decision of abortion in some form, some fashion, whether as a woman or as a a husband, father, boyfriend, um, somewhere along the way that this is impacting our, our group. Now, What's fascinating is, is as we look at these numbers and statistics, is when you start looking at the, the breakdown according to race, according to the African Americans, to the Hispanics. Um, about 13% of, of these, uh, of American women, black American women, uh, are having abortions, yet they account for over 35% of all abortions. Less than one in six Caucasian pregnancies end in abortion. But there's one in two African American pregnancies that end in abortion. Hispanics are almost three times more likely than non-Hispanics to have an abortion. So Latin women, American women, make up another 13% of the female population. But yet they count for another 20% of all abortions. Why, why is that? Why is this focus? It kind of helps you when you look into the history of uh, this group called uh, Planned Parenting, Planned Parenthood, rather, um, created by a, a woman by the name of Margaret Sanger. Back in the 1930s, she was a part of what was called the Negro Project. That's what they called it. It was designed to reduce the birth of black children. This according to the book Planned Parenthood, a close look at its founder and philosophy. So, from the very beginning, you've got this idea that we should weed out unacceptable races in the history. Whether or not that's the main cause today, the effect is the same. Is that by and large, the minorities are feeling the brunt of this abortion. Perhaps that's because the Planned Parenthood center, uh, centers are primarily in the urban areas where the minorities are living. It's where they focus uh, their businesses. And it is a money-making business uh, for Planned Parenthood. These are just some of the statistics that we're dealing with. What are the reasons? Well, you might think that abortion is being done for the hard cases like, like rape or incest or, or to save the life of the mother. But we're finding instead that 75% of abortions are done so because it is said that the baby would interfere with the work, school, or other responsibilities. 
Another 75% are saying because they don't have the money, they can't afford uh, having a child. These are, these are some of the reasons. I'm not telling you any new thing. This is just facts as it is. Now, I want to present to you that life begins at conception, not at birth. And so consequently, if this is true, then we're dealing with an issue of how do we stop lives from being killed. And in this situation, in this issue, I came across a passage as I was considering this that just kind of took my breath away. Slapped me in the face, if you will. In fact, I, I questioned whether even to present it to you because I thought it might be too much of a slap. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's what God's put in my heart, challenged me with, and so consequently, you guys are in the church I'm in, so you got <laughs> you get to feel the effect of that. Uh, Proverbs 24, Proverbs 24, verse 10 through 12. As I read this, I never have applied it to this issue of of those who are. Helpless as, as babies in their mother's womb, or as folks who may be elderly and feel in society pressure just to end it. But if you apply it to this, and I think there's room in this text to apply it to that, it's a mandate for us. Proverbs chapter 24, and in honor of this being God's word, let's stand as we read this together. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? Know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? You may be seated. So we'll read in verse 10. It has this interesting phrase that if, if your strength fails in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And you may be thinking as you read that, well, it seems understandable if adversity is coming your way to fall on your knees and to, and to quit. It seems, I mean, if you're ever going to quit, don't you always quit in adversity? It seems that makes sense to us. But if you can imagine in this way, that if you are uh, practicing for a competition, uh, uh, a football game, or, or whatever it may be, and you do all the right moves in practice, I mean, you, you get the technique down, your strength is there, and you're aggressive, and you're doing all that you need to do in practice, but when it comes time to the game, you just freeze up mentally. Then what was the point? What does it matter if you can fly down the field and catch the ball in practice if in the game you can't? You see what he's trying to say here? Is that when it matters, in times of adversity, when strength matters, you fail in that moment, then that is the point where strength mattered the most. And so your strength is small. So what do we do? 
when that's the case, I would present to you that it's, it's kind of normal for a human being to fail in times of adversity. But I, I'm imagining as I read through Scripture that it seems in time and time again, as Scripture is given to us, that in the times of adversity is not when we rely on our strength, but we rely on the strength of the Lord. Someone every once in a while tells us that, uh, well, you know what? You go through a hard time and, and the Bible says that God's not going to present and give to you more than you're able to bear, be able to bear. I'm thinking, I'm not sure that's exactly what the text says. You know, it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. What the text actually says is that God's not going to give you a temptation more than you can bear. You know, there's a difference between temptation and just hard times. As much as I like to apply that passage to the fact that God's not going to give me more difficulty than I can bear, I can't. It's not what the text says. It's talking about temptation. In fact, I found that it is God's norm to put me in a case that is beyond me, to put me in situations where my strength is long gone. That's his main mode of operating, is to put us in those situations. So in that time, we trust in God. As Paul himself said, uh, that God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. And so if we find that in the times of adversity that we are weak, guess what? God's strength is given to you in that moment. So let me ask you, as I read this passage and I connect it with verse 11, why is God's strength given to us when our strength is small, when we're weak, when we're tired, if His strength is made perfect in weakness so that in times of adversity we don't fail but succeed, what is His strength given for? I can't help but notice the next verse. Verse 11. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Could this be the very adversity that's in question? If this is true, then it could, we could say that God's strength is displayed by the intervention of those who are doomed. God's strength is on display when mankind steps into situations where mankind is doomed in some form, some fashion, and they intervene. You ever seen those, uh, those shows, um, What Would You Do? You know, it, it, uh, it has some scenario where a guy may be roughing up a girl or, you know, some stage setting, and they watch the bystanders as they go by. You know, I, I, I watch that show. I, my wife doesn't like that for some reason, but I, I kind of think it's interesting to watch as I'm studying, looking at human nature. But the, the tendency is, is that we don't step in, do we? I mean, if you ever wondered that, just watch that show, and you see it time and time after again, that's someone else's problem. I don't want to go there. Uh, and we'll think someone else will do it. And, and when we're with a group mentality, our assumption is someone else is going to do it. That's wrong. Don't, don't assume that. They won't do it. They're thinking the same thing you are. Okay? And, and so the idea is that those who are followers of Christ, when they see an injustice, when they're seeing an oppression, so that there is mortal injury that's going to be taking place, it is at this point where the follower of the Lord says, you know what, my strength is small. In times of adversity, it's, it's easy for me to fall, but there is a strength of the Lord, and I'm going to step out in this moment in time. Now, as I read verse 11, 
Notice, there's no real qualification given in verse 11 as to those who are being taken away to death. We don't know what the situation is. We don't know whether these are people who have been captive as prisoners of war uh, and, they're, and they're being led away to death. We don't know if someone's innocent and they've been wrongly accused. We don't know if this is just some violence on the street where someone's being robbed or, or uh, being murdered. Uh, we don't know if this is regards to child sacrifice. It's, it's just very general. It's not given to any specific person in this text. I think it's meant to be general. So that when we read this, we can understand, yeah, you know, when we're dealing with believers in Germany in, in the 1930s and 40s and they're seeing Jews being carried on to trains and they don't ever or never heard of again and, 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 and you're getting rumors and getting stories of, of, of Jews being killed, that the believer reads this in that day and time and says, by the strength of God, we will be different. Many believers were not. Some were. I think it's, as we read this text, when we consider the fact that there are babies, that there are children, that there's who are being legally annihilated. Can we apply this text to that situation? Can you tell me one reason why we can't? Well, we can't rescue those who are being taken away to death, hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. The popular reason is, well, those aren't humans. They're fetuses. They're embryos. They're a collection of cells. They're not babies. This text doesn't apply. They're not humans. Well, let me just share with you Somewhat, some arguments against that. Just looking at the genetics, at the very beginning, they've got the 23 chromosomes from the male, 23 from the female, and they've got the full chromosome set, everything that they need that will determine who they are. Chromosomally, they're there. They're there. They've been consumed by, conceived by two human beings, not by two animals, or a human and an animal. They are therefore utterly unique in the animal kingdom. Genetically, they're humans, not wells. They're not horses. They're not monkeys. They're apes. They're humans genetically. But secondly, I think even more persuasively for me as, a, as I follow the revelation of God is what God's word says. Psalm 139 verse 13 says, Thou didst knit me together in my mother's womb. The Bible teaches that in the womb, God is knitting together a person, not a human tissue. But a person given to us in Psalm 139, verse 13. I think about other descriptions given in the Bible. The Bible refers to the unborn, unborn in personal terms. In fact, Genesis, Genesis 25, verse 22, Rebecca's pregnancy is described like this. The children, and this is the ordinary word used for children or sons outside the womb, struggled together with her. The Bible didn't say that there was human tissues uh, conflict with one another. But there were children fighting with one another while in the mother's womb. Luke one forty one says that when Elizabeth, who was six months pregnant, heard the greeting of Mary, who would have been just recently pregnant, the babe leaped in her womb. The word for babe is the same words that you see other times referring to, for instance, the baby Jesus after he's born. You find here that this Human tissue, so to speak, is filled with the Spirit of God in Elizabeth. 
It's what we read in the scripture. The spirit of God fills people. Not just organs. Human organs. The Bible describes those who are unborn as people, as individuals. So, so there's the personal description given to Scripture. There's God's creative work that's given here. There's just the genetic aspect. There's just how they look. The common sense of, of what they look like. They look like humans. That's why it's said that if a, a mother expecting could just see the ultrasound of the baby how it so often changes their perception of what is inside them, that they see that this is a baby. And oftentimes, it will impact their decision as to whether abort or to have the child. And then let me ask you, what happens when you leave that baby alone and you give it the right environment? That human tissue, given the right environment, does it not grow into people like you and me? The capabilities and capacities, they grow up. They grow up. And then let me ask you, what will disqualify them from being a human? Some would say, well, it's, it's because they don't have the will to live. They don't have self-perception. So how does that separate someone who may be having a coma, but there is the medical certainty that they will be uh, cognizant again? In your coma, you have no self-perception. You have no will to live. You're in a coma. How's that different? And let me ask you this. When we start defining a person based on what they do, do you understand what you're laying groundwork for? What happens when you're not able to do those things anymore? You've lost your personhood. Congratulations. You have now made it to be qualified for euthanasia or any other way they want to eliminate you. Because after all, personhood is based on what you do. As we read in the Bible, we find that human dignity has been given by God, bestowed by God, not something demonstrated. Now, let me go on to verse 12. If you say, behold, we did not know this. I read this passage and it tells me that murder can be veiled, it can be concealed, it could be excused. Inactivity may be excusable by some. In fact, inactivity may be excusable by most people. How do you explain what happened in World War II? Except for the fact that most people found Inactivity, excusable. Let me just share with you, uh, according to a New York Times, 70% of Americans said, said they believe that women should be able to obtain a legal abortion if there's a strong chance of a serious defect in the Bible and the baby. That same Guttmacher Institute reports that 18% of all abortion patients identify themselves as evangelical or born-again Christians. I was up from 16% in 1987. Most people, regardless of whether they have that label Christian or not, may find this inactivity excusable. Peter Singer thinks that killing disabled newborns is only wrong if it adversely impacts other interested parties. And he wrote this in the Dallas Morning News. During the next 35 years, the traditional view of the sanctity of human life will collapse under pressure 
from scientific, technological, and demographic developments by 2040, it may be that only a rump of hardcore, know-nothing, religious fundamentalists will defend the view that every human life from conception to birth is sacrosanct. By 2040. So, we've got 30 years. According to this Peter Singer, Wesley Smith cites a New York Times editorial writer, and this was, I, was, I read this online, this New York Times. This writer says, We are all of us dogs and barnacles, pigeons and crabgrass, the same in the eyes of nature, equally remarkable and equally dispensable. There you have it. Darwinism proves humans are no more, no less valuable than barnacles. Peter's Ingrid Newkirk says that a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, is a roach. So I guess eating a man is no different than eating a steak. So there's a, an evolving in this. Um, it hit me as I, I saw the movie uh, Aviator. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right. I'm saying that right? Aviator? Thank you. Avatar. Thank you. Avatar. I was watching this and great graphics. Amazing what they do with this movie. But there was a diabolical storyline. And as as I was researching this, I I recognized this storyline as I was reading the research of some of this. Times quotes an abortionist and anthropologist Warren Hearn of University of Colorado, calling our species an eco-tumor or a planetary malignancy that is recklessly devouring its host, the poor earth. Isn't that what the movie was about? Humans are a, a cancer to nature? So, here's what happens. Personhood rights are replacing human rights. Personhood rights are replacing human rights. Can you tell the difference here? Most bioethnists do not believe that membership in the human species gives us any of us special value. Rather, what matters most is whether any organism, animal or human, is a person. A status achieved by having sufficient cognitive abilities. Thus, a self-aware puppy has more value than a day-old infant. Peter Singer goes on and writes, The fact that being a human is that being a human does not mean we should give the interest of that being preference over the similar interest of other beings. This is what we would call speciesism. Alright? So now, because there are no human rights, there's person rights. Humans are in competition with other animals and other beings. And so you have a movie where it says, look how humans are an eco-tumor, a cancer to other species. Let's not just fight for a, a race anymore. Let's now fight for all the species. And humans now are the guilty party that is wiping out other species. So... He says that would be speciesism, Peter Singer, and wrong for the same reason that racism and sexism are wrong. Pain is equally bad. It is felt by a human or a mouse. This is, this is the world as we know it. Do you understand that, boys and girls? All right. This is where our children, all right, will look back on these movies 
And they are shaping. Because it's not just an interesting storyline. And behind it are moral assumptions. Philosophical assumptions. That, is what, that is, has a great desire to be taught to our society. So there's no mistake when you have a movie like that come out. Now compare this with the gospel tradition. Now, let me just say that what I'm bringing to you, I'm bringing interesting or new facts. But this position is as old as the Bible. Let me just say that, let's go back in history a little bit. In fact, if you go to some of the early sources for Christian thinking outside of the New Testament, uh, so we're going back to maybe the beginning of the second century, to the Didache and the Epistle of Barnabas. Both of these works forbid abortion. This is a reference from the Epistle of Barnabas, going back to the second century. You shall do no murder, you shall do not commit adultery, you shall not corrupt boys, you shall not commit fornication, you shall not steal, you shall not deal in magic, you shall not do sorcery, you shall not murder a child by abortion or kill them when born. Let me just tell you that the things that we face are not new. They are as old as mankind. When Cain decides that it's preferable to wipe out Abel, and he sees no value in human life, meanwhile, God is saying to Cain, I hear the blood of your brother crying out from the ground. And if sin is as old as that, I'm going to tell you that God's truth is just as old when he says that he could hear it back in the beginning, the blood coming from the ground. I'm going to tell you that he can still hear the same thing today. So this brings us to the next point as we read the scripture. Indifference is not excused by God. Indifference is not excused by God. Inactivity is not excused by God. Though most can justify and find some plausible excuse for why they do not know or why they do not take action. God sees something different. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? I read that, and I thought, God has known every opportunity that I have had to step out, to say something, to do something against abortion. And he's aware. I can't say to God, well, you know, I was too busy. Or, I didn't, I didn't keep up with that. That wasn't my thing, God. You know? Pastoring was my thing. That, that, that wasn't it. I see that as God looks at me, He knows my heart. He knows all my excuses, my reasons why I don't. And the Bible says there is an accounting. You see that? Will He not repay men according to His work? There is a judgment that takes place. Do you realize that? There is a judgment that takes place. Now, let me just share with you one other point that is not given in this text, but is given throughout Scripture. Indifference, inactivity, even active participants in murder or abortion is not excused. But it is forgiven by God. Do you know the difference between excusing and forgiving? There's a big difference. Sometimes 
when we ought to be forgiving, we tend to excuse. You know, when someone does something bad to us, we'll say, it's no big deal. Really, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. That's a lie. You know it was a big deal. That's why you still remember it. But you don't want it to seem bad to them, so you excuse it. Or we'll say something, well, they didn't know better. You know, they, they didn't mean it. But it still doesn't change the fact that you've been injured in some way. That's excusing. It's belittling the sin that was done, right? That's not forgiveness. I hope you understand the difference. Forgiveness is seeing it for what it is, calling it what it is. You betrayed me. You hurt me. You slandered me. You lied against me. You did these things. It was murder. It was whatever it is. Call it what it is. Forgiveness is so much more than excusing. Forgiveness says, I see what you did. I know good and well what you did. And I know I'm experiencing all the implications of it. But I'm willing, I'm willing to pay that price to, to, to deal with the consequence of your sin. I'm going to deal with it. And I'm not going to hold it against you. That's a greater love, isn't it? Isn't that a greater love? What you find in the Bible is that John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. If anyone believes in Him, He will not perish but have everlasting life. There is the aspect where God says, If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to excuse you of all your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1.9 so if the statistics are right, one out of three of us in here are, are involved in this, or have been involved in this. I am not telling you to excuse it, to say you didn't know any better, um, you didn't, we weren't aware of the text, you weren't aware of the scriptures. I'm going to say no, it caught for what it is, but understand that for what it is, that God's love is so great, so precious, that his, his blood is so effective, that it can take the worst of things and says, I know what you did, but it's okay, I will pay the penalty of that, I will pay the consequences of that, and I will cleanse you of that, it will be that I will not hold it against you. But he does hold it against somebody. Because that's justice. So when Jesus is on the cross, and there's tears of blood, sweat coming out from his tears and veins and his body, and he says, God, can't this cup be passed away from me? Do I have to take this cup? And he says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And there, and following his will, he's on our cross. And in that moment, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is because he takes that sin, he takes those actions, and he puts it upon Jesus Christ. And he pays the consequence so that when God sees you, he can say, I don't hold it against you. I give you the righteousness of Jesus. That's the gospel. Welcome to the gospel. That is what this church is to be about. It is to say, you know what? We're all messed up in some ways. You know, you may have had your history in abortion. I've got my own issues that, that has to be a price paid. I'm messed up too. And the person sitting next to you is messed up too. 
But that's what the gospel does. He takes messed up people because that's the only people he can get. He takes messed up people and he says, I will forgive you and I will give you the spirit of God. I will help you think differently. I will help you look differently. When you look on that sin, though it's bad and it hurts, just understand Jesus has cleansed you. God has cleansed you through Jesus Christ. And now when you take that injury, you take that past, God takes that thing that you may have once been ashamed of, and if you're willing to be honest with God and honest with mankind, He takes that very thing that you're most ashamed of and uses it as a tool to bring glory to God. Isn't it amazing? He does things like that, but it requires you to not have the pride. Because <laughs> if you're still hung up on that shame aspect of it, you'll never admit it, you'll never confess it, and it'll never be used. That's just the nature of what God can do. Matthew 12, verse 31. Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. A lot of times we read that verse and we get hung up on, oh, well, there's a sin that won't be forgiven. What is that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? But have you focused on the first part of that verse? Every sin... And blasphemy will be forgiven, people? (laughs) You get that? Someone could be guilty of shooting down people and then they come to God and, and realize the heinous acts of what they did and come to God asking for forgiveness, repent and turn from that sin and turn to Jesus Christ. And God says, I'm not going to excuse that. I will forgive that. Our societies will excuse it and say, well, they were mentally insane. Not God. Not God. That's what this text says. That blows my mind. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to, hard to understand that. I'm not quite there yet, but I, I do believe it. What the scripture says. The forgiveness that is there. Let me tell you, in light of this, there's some implications here. First of all, I would have you take note of pregnancy life centers. Um, pregnancy life centers are, are given, are provided so that folks can understand there's another option size abortion. There are a few in Raleigh. I would encourage you to call up some of these. We're going to display the numbers here on the screen where there are just some in, in Raleigh. Contact them and find out what they need. Be a help to these sinners. There is a, um, a bill that is being presented now before the legislation of our state that I have a lot of hope for. It's a different uh, legislative climate that may be more receptive to this. It's called the Woman's Right to Know Act. This law, if enacted, will provide information for women seeking abortions, which will include the risk of abortion, options available if she should choose to carry the child to term. It also would require abortion providers to refer women to a website or printed material with information and photos of the different gestational phases of her unborn baby. And if the doctor uses ultrasound during the procedure, the doctor must offer the woman an opportunity to see the ultrasound images. I know that the answer in our country is not going to be a political answer. That's why I often don't tend toward the political. It is a spiritual problem. And it's going to take a spiritual solution that will have political implications. 
But this bill has, or this this, uh, this bill has a lot of hope, and that it just gives the right information and provides for giving the right information to people. Let me just share with you some other implications of this. If you believe that life begins at conception, you're going to have to examine carefully some medical procedures being done, fertility procedures, in vitro um, especially. Usually, I think in every case I've heard, involves fertilizing many eggs. If you believe that life begins at conception... What's happening with all those fertilized eggs? They're not being used. I think this has implications toward the stem cell research. Former President Bush effectively communicated when he was dealing with that decision. I think we have to be careful of those who are married. Examine contraceptives. Some of those that I thought were safe when we were first married, I realized that it was nothing more than just keeping the fertilized egg from having the right environment. And I was shocked. I was shocked. I didn't realize that. But another thing is that how you view people. How you view people. You have a tendency to look down at people because of their inabilities. You have a tendency to look down on a person because of their race. You have a tendency to disregard a person because of their age. Then you have not dealt with the sanctity of human life in your heart. Before we ever get to the political world, it's going to start with your heart. And somewhere along the way, you're going to ask yourself, do you believe that those fertilized eggs is human life. And if you do, what are the implications for you in your life? And I would just in that moment take you back to Proverbs chapter 24, verse 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we do not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch of your soul know it? And will he not repay men according to his work? And if you have a history being involved with this in the past, I would say go to the gospel of Christ because it is this foundation on which all of us stands. All that's been done for you is for you to understand more clearly how you need the gospel in your life. And that is a good thing because Jesus' blood is effective and is more than enough to cleanse your heart from shame, from sin, and from guilt. Will you trust in that? Let's pray.